Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Evening, folks. You are listening to Gangland Wire. Hey, true crime fans. Have you listened to Wine and Crime yet? We're a true crime comedy podcast hosted by three childhood friends who chug wine, chat true crime, and unleash our worst Minnesotan accents. Each week, us gals pick a true crime topic and pair it with a delicious wine before delving into the background and psychology behind the crime. Then we share and speculate wildly about a couple of bonkers cases related to the topic. Past episodes include necrophilia, cults, crimes of passion, cruise ship disappearances, exorcisms gone wrong, all this over a bottle of wine, or let's be real, three. Listen anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Wine and Crime Pod, and check out our website and blog at WineandCrimePodcast.com. Cheers! Former Kansas City Police Department intelligence detective and now attorney Gary Jenkins produced four documentary films, most recently Gangland Wire, creator of smartphone app entitled Kansas City Mob Tours. Download it now. If you like what you hear, go to ganglandwire.com. Navigate to the shop page. We need you to put a hit out on our donate button. Gangland Wire True Crime Stories is produced at the Big Dumb Fun Show Studio 4. And now, here's Gary Jenkins. Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there. It's good to be here in the classic old ice house building in Midtown Kansas City on a hot uh, spring day. Time you hear this, it'll probably be a, a warm fall day because we're kind of booked up. We've got a lot of them in in the uh, uh it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Stream of, of podcasts coming out, and this one will go in along with the. We've done two prior, and this will be the uh, third episode on Harry the Hook Aleman. 
I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Aaron. Say hello, Aaron. Hello, Aaron. You know, Harry, Harry the Hook Aleman is, uh, was, was, I guess he's deceased now, half Mexican, half Sicilian, and he was a, a hitman for the Chicago outfit. He was an enforcer, a street tax collector, and he was a skipper of his own home invasion crew. And we have uh, our own resident expert on all things Chicago outfit from uh, Chicago, Mike Burns. Say hello, Mike. How you doing? Good. How you doing, guys? I'm doing great. Good. So, uh, Mike, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about tell tell the folks. Some some people may not they may come in on this one episode. Tell them a little bit about your Facebook page that you uh, manage, and it's growing all the time. I know it's Red put up something about you got you're getting up around four thousand likes, I believe. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yep, yeah, my, the Facebook group's called uh, Chicago Outfit Old and Current News Articles, and I focus on the era of, like, from the 19, 1960 on up to the current day information on the outfit and stuff like that, so I don't really feel too much about Al Capone or that Prohibition era stuff, and we focus mainly on, like, the Sam Giancana, Cardo years, Joey Ayupa, Jackie Cerrone, those guys, and I just basically, every day I'll post articles, you know, from various decades, from the 60s up to now, you know, just anything from like you know low-level outfit members and associates to the top guys, and you know, and we have, you know people can discuss you know the articles and share stories that they know you know about the articles and stuff. So it's a, it's a you know yeah, but we're um yeah, but approaching almost four thousand members now. I started the group in July of two thousand and fifteen. The cool. outfit's got enough activity going on that there's something to, something to put up every day. Well, uh, yeah, unfortunately now, I mean, I. I I mean, usually with current news, um, I mean, it's pretty slow around here now and stuff. So, I mean, I probably average only maybe one or two current articles a month, depending on, like, what's going on. right? And right now, things are pretty slow right now as far as with the news and with the current outfit. But um, I, every day I post at least a minimum of three articles uh, from the from the archives, basically of Chicago Tribune and, and a couple other papers. I'll use their archives, and um, I'll post anywhere from three to sometimes up to eight or nine articles a day from various decades of, of older deceased outfit members and some who are currently living or maybe retired now but yeah usually with the current stuff though i just got to basically wait i mean there's you know until the news does an article and stuff like that and there's been a few few names lately been in the press but not much has been happening lately in the, in the local news around here uh, and you just moved personally, didn't you, to the uh, uh, what what would have been known as what we might have called Little Italy in Kansas City? Was it to the yeah, ta- Taylor I Street? Right. I, I live yeah, basically to one of like the big mob neighborhoods. It still is actually a big 
big haven for a lot of the guys who live live in the area, a lot of old timers, and it's like the Brandon Ogden neighborhood where the Grand Avenue crew work out of. As I moved about about two or three weeks ago, so yeah, I'm pretty much right in the heart of of the the mob area. And I've already seen one or two guys in the neighborhood and stuff. Like that. I spoke to one of them just in passing. He doesn't know who I am, and I mean, I don't think he knew that I knew who he was, but I knew who he was, kind of. But um, it's but still, it's, yeah, it's a very Italian neighborhood, though. Well, you know, we'll we'll see you sitting out on the uh, on the sidewalk at a little table drinking espresso with a, an older gentleman wearing a, wearing a thousand dollar suit or two thousand dollar suit one of these days. What we smoking cigars and drinking espresso? Yeah, I tanned myself with those little tanners. <laughs> and and the feds will be down the street going click 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 click. Who is this dude? Who's this new guy? We got to figure out who he is. Okay, let's put a tail on him when he leaves. Let's, let's we got to figure out who he is. What's his deal? Yeah, but now you can. Really really break some news <laughs> now you could really get some news articles you wouldn't have to go to the tribune you just get them from the source get them right straight from the source i'll tell you what mike that that chicago tribune they covered the mafia like the do the outfit like the do didn't they god they had so many sources oh, yeah, of their I mean, own and wrote so many articles i mean god it's unbelievable how much stuff that's in those yeah papers. i mean i get messages every now and then from people asking about like you know you know, you know. At what point are you gonna run out of information? And I tell people, like, well, I go, uh, there's enough articles in this archive. I could keep the group going for another five years. No, it's God, more, yeah. With, and, and, and that's not even repeating articles that I. Because every now and then I'll repeat a certain article because we have a lot of new members come in. So I'll do some repeats every now and then. Or if someone has a re- request, I'll like you know dig up some articles. But I mean, there's so much untouched stuff I haven't even like begun to even look at yet and even go over. Yeah, the Tribune really covered the outfit. You know, through columnists like Mike Royko and stuff, they those guys covered the outfit a lot, and they had like three or four reporters who, you know, pretty much full time would report on the outfit. So oh, yeah, man. there's a lot of information in there. That Ron Koziel, he was uh, boy, he covered them all over the yeah, place. Yeah, he was. A, yeah, he was a really good one too. Yeah. He's a good one to watch for. Plus, Mike, don't feel bad about reposting. I'll tell you, from a fan's viewpoint, and you can call me a fan of your Facebook site, from a fan's viewpoint, sometimes I'll see it, but I won't have time to to click on it and kind of enlarge it to, to read it. And so I'll brush it over, and then I'll be glad when it comes back up again. Like I tell you, for example, I, and I commented, and I guess we're not going to find out any more information on those uh, four businessmen that were killed up on the north side. You, and we know that was oh, an yeah, outfit the deal. Oh, yeah, in 1977, yeah. Right, and and there's been several others that uh, that I clicked on because I didn't take time to do it before, and then they're gone. So, uh, you know, when they come back up again, and if I may have time that time, so don't ever feel bad about reposting, so especially your more interesting, longer articles. Um, because yeah, that's they, what I try to do. I try to like it's stuff that I know people will be interested in re- rereading, or like they may have missed it. Yeah, like a lot of like you know, kind of key articles that I know people, a lot of people, will be interested in reading. I'll, I, you know, I'll make sure to repost those every few months or so, just to kind of. I know people really like. There's certain there's certain people like you know, Spilatro, Ocardo, yeah, yeah. and those guys. People, I mean. People can't get enough of those articles. I mean, I could post a, I could post ten Spilatro articles a day. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't be enough. More. Yes, you know, it wouldn't be enough. Certain guys that people just really want want articles on. So I usually will tend to like try to you know I try, I try to mix it up as much as possible. Cause I don't want to focus too much on one person yeah. unless I get a lot of requests. But you know, but there's certain people that just people like reading about. Yeah, that's that's probably the next uh, multi-episode thing we ought to do is Tony Spilatro. You sent me a bunch of copies of those articles, and I've got them all in the 
in my files, and I've just never sat down and done what I did with Harry Aleman and just take several hours and go through it and make notes, and, and so I can make a kind of chronological sense out of it. That's the only way I can do these things is, is like that. Oh, definitely. So we'll, we'll do that. We'll do Tony Splatro one of these days, although, you know, he, I guess he needs to thank Joe Petsy for, for being so famous. He's kind of the John Gotti of, of the outfit now. Now, that's a dubious <laughs> honor at best, being, uh, being the most popular, oh, most well-known among uh, uh, uh uh, citizens or civilians, shall we say, that's a that's a pretty dubious honor. The real deal mob guys, they're not the ones that you know a whole lot about, like Paul Rica and the people that are really successful. Oh, definitely. All right, well, let's get started on, on Harry. I mentioned earlier that a lot of our inside information that we know about Harry Aleman came from one of his crew members from the Taylor Street crew, and his name was Lou Almedia. Lou was kind of a small-time thug, and he went to robbery for prison early on and when he got back out uh he contacted him ran into harry Elman, or they knew each probably knew each other from the neighborhood i don't know the real history of that and uh Elman gave him a 2500 hundred dollar loan and to get him started back in the streets and hired him as his driver and uh, he said that he would claim later after he went in the witness protection program that he said harry told me he says just drive me and don't get lost that's a pretty simple request. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I would not get. I would not want to be responsible to get Harry Aleman lost. Would you? No, especially in those days. You, you don't have the, you know, all the modern technology. You, have, you know, the really? GPS systems you have now, where you can just type it in. Which would obviously you, you wouldn't want to do being a criminal because the the cops get a hold of your <laughs> your system. They can see exactly where you were at. But yeah, you don't want to get a guy like Harry Aleman lost. I don't know. How well are you going to know the streets? You just got out of prison. <laughs> well, he grew up on the streets. Yeah, so. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think. Well, Louis. I know Louis did grow up with Harry. They were they were childhood friends. I know. I do oh, know okay, that. Okay, I didn't realize that. So, I mean. Yeah, they did grow up. I, when um during the I mean I mean which we'll talk about very soon the 1977 trial, um, Harry Alman's mother made a comment. It was in one of the articles how um that she knew she knew Louis when she was a she used to let Louis come over as a child and hang out in her home and he and she would feed Louis and she said even as a kid she thought Louis was no good. Which obviously she's saying that because she was testifying against her son. But um yeah they did they, they I know they did grow up together. I don't know what age they became friends, though, but they but they knew they had a long history together, Louis and Harry. Well, here here's some of the things he said about him, uh, and the the coppers that were interviewing him asked him if he thought Harry Elman really killed as many as twenty people, and Almedia replied, "I don't know. He liked to kill things. Uh, sometimes the police they don't know who did a hit, so I think they just put it on Harry, which was probably true. Oh, <laughs> they put one down in I Kansas agree. City I, on yeah. him." <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean that's exactly. It. I mean, like guys like Splotcho and Harry, I think they were easy targets for the cops and the feds just to kind of any unsolved murders they could just link it to those two and something like that. And I think a later mob trials when it came out and like the guys like Dick Calabrese testified and during Family Secrets and he told how like a lot of these murders, a lot of these guys, you know, they a lot a lot of these killers were not really seasoned killers. They were just put in that position to do it because they had to make their bones. And stuff like that. So, but guys like Harry, but a guy like Harry and Tony Spilatro, obviously that they were very good at what they did. And obviously, they—I don't know if he killed as many as they, as they say he killed, but he definitely has had a probably a good track record of murders he was involved in. Yeah, he asked him. He said, "Well, what kind of cars did uh, Aleman like to drive?" And he said, "Well, I don't know." He said, "You mean legit cars?" <laughs> he said, "I don't know. Everybody drove stolen cars." <laughs> <laughs> 
he went on to say, you know, when he, he became part of Harry's crew and he would go out and do home invasions and he said, I used to get my ammunition from Harry. He used to, he made his own, he loaded his own ammunition in the garage of his house. And we had a whole kind of discussion about that. And even Frank Culotta kind of agrees that these guys in Chicago would load their own ammo with, in their, with a 22 caliber uh, for a pistol and they would do a light load so it wouldn't make as much noise. You'd still have a silencer on it and, and have a lighter load so it wouldn't make as much noise. And hence that, and when you do that, that's what happened with uh, uh, Ken Ito, uh, Tokyo Joe, is yep. the, the lightly loaded twenty two caliber bullets didn't even penetrate his skull. Yeah, that's, that's what saved him, actually, was the faulty ammunition on that head. You're telling me maybe it's Harry Ailman's fault that all these Chicago guys want to load their own rounds? Uh, maybe he he may have loaded them all yeah, I'm not, and, yeah, I'm not sure. and passed them around. Yeah, I'm not sure. Who st- he got kind of got the trend started. started. Yeah. What'd you say, Mike? Yeah, I'm not sure who kind of started that trend of making their own ammunition or loading their own ammunition. Because, I mean, even back then, silencers were fairly common back then. I'm surprised silencers weren't used more often. I mean, unless they were harder to come by, maybe, for, you know, some of these guys. But you think, like, silencers would be the best way to do a hit if you're going to do it in the open, like Harry. Like, Harry was very big on wanting to do hits in the open and stuff. So you think a silencer would be the best method to, to, to go with, but apparently I think some of these guys maybe, I think, like, you know, like with a, a loud gun going off, people might tend to, like, talk and not see not see the person shooting, though, too, because sometimes the loud effect of a gunshot makes witnesses, will startle them. So, I mean, I, I guess it all depends on the view of the hitman and what he prefers yeah. and how he wants to do his hit. I thought a lot of them used a pillow as a silencer. <laughs> well, that's in the movies, that's for sure. <laughs> Well, it's it's always interesting the different ways that they work. Um, you know, Almedia, I think he's also the guy that told about, and we talked about this before, about sitting with Harry and, and hearing the news. I think he was sitting in the um, uh, the Survivors Athletic Club and talked about the news about Joey Gallo getting hit in public with, in a real flamboyant way, shooting him at, at his table in the restaurant. And, and he said, yeah, that's the way to do that. That's, that's real gangster or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he said Alma was really impressed with that, with the Gallo hit. That's pretty interesting. So let's start talking about some of the crimes that we know we had something to do with. Uh, kind of interesting. The first one we're going to talk about wasn't really Harry Elliman, but it was a couple of his crew members. And, and it, it's, it kind of shows you how ingrained that the Chicago police, particularly this William Hanhart, which we did a show on, were with the outfit. In uh, uh, 1972, Almedia said that he was standing outside at Harry Elliman's house in Melrose Park talking to him, and, and Elliman said that he just talked on the phone with a couple of his robbery crew members and learned they had kidnapped a hillside, that's Hillside, Illinois, policeman named Anthony Raymond. They took him to Wisconsin. They, they put him in the trunk of his car. After he stopped him, they got the drop on him, stuffed him in the trunk of his car, took him up to Wisconsin to a farm, and killed him. Uh, Aleman supposedly said that they tortured him to death. I don't, I don't know if they really did that, but they did kill him. Uh, and he said, uh, he said he told this guy that uh, that called him is, is one of his robbery crew members. Says, "What are you telling me this for? I don't want to hear it. I don't want to be involved. <laughs> that was a huge mistake." Uh, he said Harry just didn't like that, uh, and he said that he said the way Harry looked at him. He said, "I thought he was going to have me hit for just knowing about it now, and he's the one that told me." Uh, <laughs> 
It, it's crazy. And he, yeah, that's, yeah, that, that's like. Go ahead. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Hill, yeah, because Hillside is a just a, a short west suburb of Chicago, where that's where Anthony Raymond was was abducted from. And he was abducted in October of '72, and he didn't find his body until August of '73 in Rhinelander, Wisconsin. They took him, and that's where they, they found him in a far, they found his body in a farm with stab wounds in the back. So they believe he was probably stabbed to death. Interesting. And then buried buried up there. And now they had they had robbed a the Swedish Manor restaurant. I think they'd gotten a few grand out of that restaurant. That was back before credit cards were so popular, so everybody paid cash. And there was three of them. And what what I find why their connection with the Chicago PD is the person who turned up all the clues on this was William Hanhart, who was ends up yep. running his own robbery crews, uh, uh, doing jewelry gigs uh, and and ended up doing time for it but i think i reading between the lines my experience would tell me that that the outfit got together and said you know this is way too much heat and william hanhart probably oh, came definitely. to him and said you know this is bullshit this for your guys you got to help us you got to we got to get these guys and, and so somebody gave it up to hanhart who uh was able to go out and make a case on him now one of them was killed by the police in another crime but the other two, this, uh, uh, what was their names, Robert Martinez and Silas Fletcher, ended up being buried, being arrested by Hanhart and some of his squad, and they were, ended up being convicted for aggregating, aggravated kidnapping and murder of the police officer. And I think you said that uh, you had some information that Fletcher tried to get out on parole, but it was denied sometime. In yeah, the, in the, 90, he, he came up for parole in 95, and he was denied parole. So, and I, that, and that's the last I could find. I'm assuming he's, if he's alive. I mean, which I mean, at this point now, I don't know, but I don't think he ever got out. And you know, a prisoner, if he still, he still could be in prison. But yeah, I mean, like, I, I'm, I'm actually really surprised that Bialka didn't take care of the two, just kill the people. Unless Handhart really wanted to make it look, get headlines out of it, and bring these two guys to justice, which would. But it would also take some, because at the time, that even back in the 70s, Hanhart, I mean, a lot of people knew he was kind of sketchy in the department and everything. So maybe Hanhart's point of view was, well, if I bring these two guys to justice, these two guys who killed the hillside cop, you know, I, I don't look, I don't look so much like a bad guy anymore, you know? It's like that, but like usually the, the outfit's way of dealing with stuff like this is just killing the people immediately, you know, who brought heat on them. And yeah, kidnap, kidnapping and killing a, a police officer is not, not a wise thing to do, even for an outfit member or an associate to do. Yeah, and and probably uh, Edelman would have got a piece of that robbery, more than likely. But I, I can. Oh, definitely. You, you have to speculate is the only thing we got right now because Almedia didn't really go and he didn't wasn't privy to all the details on how they made this decision. But you know, this had to go all the way up to uh, Cardo was alive then, and and Iupa was around, and. You know, it had to go all the way up to the top level and say, "Okay, this is what happened, and and now what do we do?" And for some reason, you know, they said, "Well, here's what we'll do: uh, we're going to let Hanhart. We're going to give these guys up to Hanhart and just go ahead and let uh, the law take take care of this deal, and 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 he'll promise that he will not let this come back to us." Now, I, I'm surprised that that they did that because what's to keep these guys from from then? Saying, well, we did this for Harry Edelman, and uh, uh, 
and his boss, and I can't even think uh, uh, Joe Ferriola. You know, he's you know we we had to give them a piece of the action. We're part of that crew, but apparently they didn't, or if they did, they didn't. Uh, it, it didn't get to the feds because the feds would have would have been all over that, and I didn't I didn't find out anything oh, like that. Uh, yeah, I, I I don't want to get off topic real fast. I just bring this. I just saw this real quick. Robert Martinez, the one man you mentioned that who, who um was involved and convicted in the kidnapping. Yeah. He came up for parole in 2013, and it was also denied parole for oh. the murder of Anthony Raymond. So it sounds so like apparently the, about, they think these guys are still alive. The the Sliss Flusher and uh, Martinez are both still alive and serving time, and they're still serving their sentences. I don't know where. <clears throat> I wonder where I. I just I had done a search on Fletcher in the Illinois uh, Correctional, and it came back. I didn't see his name by his first name as as uh, as Silas or an S. And uh, although when we did a search on the Federal Bureau of Prisons, there was a, it did seem to come up. Yeah, Silas did come up for something else that he had been paroled on, but that was back like in the eighties. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Interesting. Well. Moving right along, that's well, if, you're, uh, if you're listening and you know anything about Silas Fletcher. <laughs> yeah, you know if they're in prison, maybe we could go to the prison to interview them. I just had somebody, uh, one of our fans, got a hold of me and asked if we'd ever gone into prison to interview anybody, and I said, well, you know, matter of fact, we have. Here's a link to the oh, episode. Really. It says also Martinez is up for parole this year again. Hey, oh wow, 2018. Does it say what? Fa- old is, is there a link to put money on his books? What what facility is he in? Um, let's see, yes, um, it says here, in this article here, um, it's, well, all it says, the parole hearing took place in Springfield, Illinois. Mm. Yeah, well, that would be so, the state capital, so. He's got to be, yeah, so he's got, I'm assuming he's probably somewhere in Illinois, maybe, probably, serving out his sentence, maybe, yeah. but I don't, I don't know for sure, though, I, it's something I'll, I'll look more into this. Okay, Interesting. Well, let's move along to the killing of Billy Logan, which was probably ended up being the downfall of Harry Ailman, although it took a long time, didn't it, Mike? Oh, no, a real long time. Remind me, Billy Logan was a, he was a dispatcher and he was in the Teamsters, and and I believe... Yeah, he he worked for a a trucking company dispatcher, and he was, yeah, like a low-level teamster guy, and he was married to a relative of Harry Ellman's at one point, and they had a, a bitter divorce they had at the time, and it's like that. And apparently at one point he got to fight with his, well, I don't know if they were, still, they were married, but when his, you know, his wife said, I'll, you know, I'm going to tell he apparently told his wife, you know, he, you know, he made a derogatory comment about Harry being Italian or whatever, call him a Dago or whatever, and she said, she's like, well, I'm going to tell Harry what you said. And he said, I don't give a, you know, I don't give a rat's ass what you tell Harry and stuff. And apparently that's what they said may have set this whole thing off. And, like, I guess apparently, they, I mean, there's also reports that he abused his wife or ex-wife, which I don't, that, that to me, I don't know if that's true or not. But I think that's what set the whole thing in motion, though, with um, the whole, the, 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 that's, most investigators say they think that, that set the thing in motion, Logan's murder was, you know, was over basically just personal stuff and not really a sanctioned outfit hit. Yeah, interesting that, that they would do that. He 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 almost had seemed like he almost had to get somebody's approval to do that. I I had heard. I That's read. What I would think too. Yeah. I read one yeah, other I thing mean, that somebody. Yeah. So, I, I read that somebody had approached him to set up 
some trucks to, uh, you know, let somebody know what was in what truck and, and where the trailer would be for him to hijack it, and, and he refused to do it. Now, I, I don't know. Now, that would be the kind of thing you might uh, get the approval for. I'm kind of surprised. Harry Elman was pretty important to the uh, to the outfit, so I guess if he went to somebody and said, you know, this is important to me, they'll say, okay, you know, as long as you can get away with yeah, it. Yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, if I, if I had to take an educated guess, I mean, Harry knew how things were were run back then, and you did. You mean, yeah, even if it was something that had nothing to do with the outfit, if you were a guy like Harry, you'd have to go. You'd have to go to your your, your boss and get permission, especially for a murder. You know, just because the, 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 his bosses need, they need to know if there's going to be going to be negative impact impact on the outfit on on, on this murder. You know. So so that night he uh, he and Lou uh, Lewis or Louis Almedia were he, Almedia drove him over there and he sat and waited. He knew that Billy Logan was living with his sister. I can't remember the address. Do you remember where that was, Mike? It was on um, Wal- is it Walton Street? I think he lived on. Was it the west? It was on the the far west side of Chicago, right okay. near the Oak Park border. I believe it was Walton Street. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't look that one up. Yeah, he was murdered on. Okay, so yeah. he he had two jobs, and he was uh, he had already worked. I think it was at a gas station, maybe, and he was gone home to his sister's house, and he was going back out. And they knew he was going back out about eleven o'clock at night to go to his uh, dispatcher's job for the uh, uh, trucking line, or either that or was vice versa to go to his gas station job. I I did not make a note. I think he was going out to do his. Um, uh, dispatching job for the truck line. Yeah, I think he was. Yeah, he was head down. Yeah, I think it was a night job he had doing yeah. that. So there, and he had a neighbor named Bob Lowell who was walking up the street because he wanted to sell Billy Logan a watchdog. He, he had some kind of dogs that he was probably breeding, home breeding dogs, and and he had uh, he knew that Logan might be in the uh, uh, market for a watchdog. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> I think Logan probably knew his <laughs> he was in trouble. And and as Bob Lowell gets to the house, Billy Logan's walking out just like clockwork. His neighbor knew he'd come out at that time, and Harry Elliman knew he'd come out at that time. And Elliman jumps out of his car and, and uh, points a gun at him, I believe it was a shotgun, and, and shot him and killed him. He said uh, yep. he, he looked at the other guy. They looked at each other eye to eye and got back in the car and left. And... Uh, Bob Lowell, when he got back to his house, he tells his father about it. His father says, you know, that's a syndicate killing. You need to just shut up and get away from that deal. Do not talk to the police. He did not volunteer any information that night. Yeah, he kept that guard dog for he kept himself. That, he kept that guard dog for himself, yes. <laughs> but but it always bothered him. It bothered him for quite a while. And three months after the murder, he went into Chicago police and picked out Harry Elliman. I think that, you know, more I'm thinking about, they did interview him that night, and he said he didn't. He did. He was interviewed that night. He was interviewed that night. Too forthcoming. I think he kind of talked about what he saw, but his father was kind of interjecting, saying, like, he was telling his son to shut up and not and not say anything. And I think, like, he, but I think I think it was in the second interview when he came in and picked the photo out. Yeah. That's when he really gave more information to the cops. Then. Yeah, that, that's that's the deal. Um, Isn't it kind of surprising that the ailmen, they didn't wear masks or anything? Well, that's how bold he was, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you think, yeah, I mean, I mean uh, yeah, I mean, if you would have wore a mask, 
who knows how this whole the whole thing could have gone down differently? Because I mean, just because he, I mean, it all came down to basically you know, you know, Bob, you know, Bob Lowe seeing Elman's face. Basically, I mean, you know, he was he was that close to him. So I mean, yeah, if he would have wore a mask, I mean, right there, the, the trial probably would, you know, besides Louis's testimony, that's all they would have really had at that point. Yeah, and here's how bad the cops were at the time. Uh, the feds know that have learned that Bob Lowe's gone in and picked out Harry Edelman out of a, a decent what we call a photo spread. They get about five or six photos of guys that look similar, and he picked him out. Uh, but no case was ever brought. And, and then the uh, they kind of jogged the state's attorney to check on the progress of the case. And, and at first the cops said that Lowell was lying, and then he hadn't come into headquarters, and no one had ever showed him any photos. Then they changed their story and said that they, well, yeah, he did come in, but we lost his identification. So this this case right. languished, languished because of Chicago PD until 1977, which is about five years later, when Lou, Louis Almedia has been arrested and comes into witness protection program. And that was one of the, the big things that he gave up because he was the, he was the driver in, of Harry Edelman the night of the hit. Uh, they go back out, they find Bobby Lowell, and he agrees to cooperate, even though he's probably already had to lay low for the last several years. Uh, but then he finds, I think he really didn't know who Aleman was. When he did, he wanted to back out, but he... Yeah, I think one of the investigators told, kind of gave him Harry's backstory, and yeah. I think he kind of had second thoughts, but then he still knew, he's kind of, he felt like he had a duty to, you know, to help out and, you know... And pit him behind bars. I just don't. I don't think he, Bob Lowe was prepared to, you know, for what what was in front of him you know, with no. the trial and everything. I don't think he was. He he knew how much you know. Well, you know how much what, what you know. His, I mean, just the ramifications of what ended up happening with him and everything. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's a pretty. It's a. It's an amazing story. It is, and and you know, if you think about, it, see, this was a state case in Cook County, and everybody knows that the outfits got Cook County and Chicago wired. So oh, he, definitely. Yeah, I mean, his case. Yeah, I mean, his case from from the. I mean, even before the. I mean, even before the trial started, there was early hints of like of the case being fixed, even because it was. I mean, it was that corrupt that the the court system was so corrupt back then. The cops were so corrupt. It was like you know. I mean, I mean, back then the the defendants had the choice of choosing a judge or a jury. So I mean, right there, you give it. You know, and so, you know, it was fairly. I mean, you know, and I'm sure and stuff we'll cover probably in the next few minutes. You know, just shows you how obvious it was that the case was fixed from the get-go. Oh yeah, because you got you got Louis Almeida testifying that he drove him there and watched him do it. Then you got Bob Lowe. You know, Almeida he might be suspect because he's a convicted felon and and uh, trying to buy his way out of, of a bunch of other time. But Bob Lowe was John Doe citizen. Uh, he was. And, yeah, and, and, I mean, I think the only thing that the only dirt they could dig up on him is he wrote a bad check once. Yeah, I guess on something, and that was like the only dirt they could really dug that Harry's lawyers could dig up on on low. So I mean, he had a pretty clean history, and he was a you know a nine to five blue collar worker. So I mean, he really had nothing to gain by testifying. He was doing this more as a good citizen. And you know the outfit's not above killing a witness, and and Bob Lowe. Oh, what, not at what all. I read about at that it. time. Yeah, he was. He had to leave his job. He has a, a job as a gas station manager. He had to leave that job, move somewhere else. His family, as it got closer to trial, was put under twenty-four hour a day guard, seven days a week. 
with Cook County, you know, and the Chicago PD guys, which I don't know. <laughs> I, I yeah, would, I, don't, I don't know if I would, even, would trust them even back then, yeah. having the Chicago PD guard. Oh, man. You know, it's like that. And I know at, the outfit did try to, reach, try to reach out. They 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 contacted Bobby Lowe's wife's sister. Yeah. They, got a, they, they contacted at one point, even try, and trying to get a location on where, where they were located at and everything. They wanted photos, I think, of the family and like that. And but luckily the cops got you know, they got wind of that and they and like that and they nipped that in the bud pretty quick. But yeah, I mean there was about that that we're making attempts to locate them. So yeah, I mean it was I mean, I don't know if, if they were gonna go that as far as kill Bobby Lowe or or maybe just try to offer money and say, yeah. Hey, don't testify. I mean, but back then, I mean, yeah, it was wasn't rare for the outfit to kill witnesses. Well, they had an inside track to try to find out who it was in terms of uh, William Hanhart. Yeah, really. Who could just go to the case file and probably look it up and tell them. And then uh, yeah. here, where was it at? In, in Gary's notes, that was the, where did I, just, I just had it here. That address where uh, Billy Logan lived was 5916 West Walton Street. Oh, yeah. That would have been right up okay. the street from, uh, from um, uh, Billy uh, Logan's. Right. I, yeah, I was, yeah, that's like just the far west side of Chicago. Yeah, right yeah. near the Oak Park, which is weird, which is weird. That 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 area at that time, a lot of outfit guys kind of lived that near that area where that hit took place actually too, which is kind of you know that's a unusual. Also yeah, for, that's unusual. Yeah, the outfit allow a hit to be that close to like where the bosses lived. But we're talking. This was what five years between when the murder happened and when Almedia comes forward in the witness protection when he's tried. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, they go to trial, and, and as you said, Mike, <laughs> in Chicago, and Tony Spilatro did the same thing, the, his lawyer can say, I don't really want a jury trial, I want a bench trial or a judge-only trial, and they did that. Because exactly, it, and the ironic thing was, is the judge that they ended up choosing, because back then, um, the defendants were allowed to uh, substitute two judges that they, uh, that they thought they did that they didn't want to be tried in front of. And one of the judges that they turned down was the judge they ended up choosing for the fix. So yeah. right there, I mean, that just, I mean, if that doesn't show you right there that the thing was fixed from, the, from there, but, I mean, which even Robert Cooley, who was, was a major person to fix, that was a big issue with him, I think, too, was like, he's like, well, we can't use this judge because you already said you don't want to use the judge, you know? But, you know, that's the way these guys are, though, that, you know, they, they wanted to do things their way. That's how arrogant and corrupt that that whole system was, is that they turned down Frank Wilson and then Robert Cooley, who we'll get to in a little bit. Robert Cooley is a former Chicago policeman, now turned attorney and a corrupt attorney who had huge gambling debts, huge gambling debts at the time, and they owned him. He was a guy that would could go around paying off the judges and the uh, – any, anybody in the county, basically, but particularly in the court system, and, and he did a lot. And he's the one that ended up coming back around to Frank Wilson with the money. <clears throat> but uh, they were, he told him, uh, I read the book, uh, um, what's the name of that book? Uh, it's a really good one on this. I think that Ron Coziel was one of the, the authors. Cool, cool Every, the other everybody pays. Everybody not, pays. Not, everybody yep. pays. That's a really well-written book on this. Oh, that was great, that's, the, great, that's probably the most comprehensive book about the entire murder and trial. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah, and, and and so Cooley then tells him, he said, well, you know, you can't go back and, and then say you want that judge. You already turned him down once, but Cooley's, Cooley, I got one. 
Cooley's able to pay him off. So they just said, no, that's who we want. They go back to the system, and they control the system so bad that they get this judge who Cooley has already got an agreement with that, that he'll pay him off. It's amazing. And so with the end result here, folks, is you got Louis Alamedia, the driver, saying, yeah, I drove him over there. Yeah, he did it. I drove him away. You got a, a neighbor said, yeah, he did it. On the other hand, they've got his wife and a couple and three other friends, I think, who claimed that he was a golf range. He was out driving golf balls at that time, which is at night. Yep. So I, I don't know. But, it, you know, not guilty. The prosecutor had a statement that it's actually out there online. Said this is the most evidence I've ever had in a murder trial to not get a conviction. <laughs> and he just walked away from the uh Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember the headlines day after that trial. I mean, it was like every column and every reporter who was covering that story had, you'll be saying there, this had to be a fix. This had, you know, there was, the fix was in on this one because it was, I mean, two eyewitnesses. I mean, that you don't get much better than that, especially for like an outfit murder and stuff like that. So, you know, it was, and then at that time, even, the, I mean, the, the, most of the press knew that. The, the court system was fairly corrupt back then, so, I mean, but there was, at that time, there was, there, you know, this is before Operation Greylord started, so, I mean, that, that the court system was, was just as corrupt as the, the Chicago police system at that time. Yeah, they even had, a, they had their own table, this Pat Macy and uh, some of those mob guys who were connected to everybody in Cook County government and Chicago city government, they, and uh, they called it, or they call that restaurant Counselor's Row, I think. And then oh, they Counselor's had, Row, yep. They had a particular yeah, table row. <laughs> that they all sat at. Yeah, the first ward table. Yeah. yeah. The first ward table, Pat Marcy. And Pat Marcy was one of the, um, probably the key guys in the fix, too, for that. Pat Marcy was a, a maid outfit member who also, um, you know, he was, Basically, the he was basically the main the main conduct between the outfit and the city politicians and the corrupt judges and cops at that time. So he must have brought the judge in, and then Robert Cooley ended up paying him. It sounds to me like her. Yeah, well, both well, of them well together. according to Cooley, Cooley Marcy met with Cooley and asked him if he knew a judge that could handle a case. And Cooley asked him, "Oh, is it Allen your case?" And Marcy says, "Yes." And he's like, "Well." I have someone in mind, but I don't want to say who it is until I can get him. And then once um, Cooley met with um, Judge Wilson, he told Pat Marcy was Wilson, and Marcy got all excited saying, oh, he's perfect for this. He's great. So Marcy, was, uh, Marcy knew, I think, Wilson probably fixed cases in the past for Marcy, probably. And, you know, and, yeah, and it was $10,000 they came to agree to pay Frank Wilson for the fix. You know, I've, I've written I've written down somebody in the book. Um, Everybody pays. They they had some exact language from Wilson when he read the verdict, and and he says uh, he's been a judge and I've been a judge in criminal court for over ten years, and I've twice sentenced men to die in the electric chair, and kind of establishing that he's a, a law and order judge. None of them were in the mob. Yeah. <laughs> None of them were in the mob. <laughs> And then he <laughs> he focused on the statement, the first one that, that Lowell gave where he didn't identify Harry Edelman, and he said the policeman wrote them down, talking about those first statements, and then Lowell denied on the stand that he said those things because of that variance in his testimony puts it in great doubt. The first statement is inherent, yeah. inherently more trustworthy than testimony from the stand. I find that the state has fallen short of its burden, proving the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And not guilty— 
Harry Edelman walked out. He was I, there's a little clip on Facebook of him right after walking out of the courthouse, and he is all smiles, and his family's hanging all over him. They're all smiles. <laughs> they only knew what yeah, happened. And then I think at the end it, it even came out. I mean, which we'll get to obviously, at a, it, it, you know, in a few more minutes. He Edelman told associates at the time also that when they would ask, like, "Wow, Harry, you're getting crucified in the press," and he would tell his friends, "Don't worry, I, I have it all taken care of." So I mean. Harry was well aware. I mean, it was. I mean, it was definitely. I mean, it was a well-planned fix, but not, I mean, not poorly executed with the amount of people that had knowledge of it. I mean, if you're going to fix a case like that, the less people know, the better it is. But you had Cooley, you had Pat Marcy, you had you know all of Allman's associates and outfits who they all knew about it. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was really uh, bold of them to do that. I mean, you'd think that they. I'm surprised. I mean. I'm really surprised the outfit. I mean, I mean, they have to. I mean, for for as many clever and conniving things they've gotten away with, yeah. that was pretty bold enough. To, pretty, I mean, a pretty risky thing to do for, especially for a, such a minor, a minor hit. When you come to think about it, you know, a guy like you know Billy Logan, he was killed for you know apparently you know you know him and Allen's relative being married, not getting along very well. Usually, you think you would save. Save the fixes for something more important, like really? for like what Spilatro was charged for later, and what he was, you know, what the fix was in for too. But apparently, the outfit where they really wanted to protect Allen, though, because he was that important to those guys, and he was he was good at what he did. So I think it, you know, the outfit thought as an investment. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, and you know, I mean, they could have even uh, gone in there and tried to say, well, this was self defense. He, you know, they had an argument. You know, Harry got out and and he thought he saw uh, Billy Logan reaching for a gun so he grabbed a gun and shot him I mean, and you know you could have given him like 10 years and, and ended up getting him out about oh, three definitely. years that could have easily uh, uh taken all of attention away from this it, with any kind of conviction but boy when there was absolutely no conviction and not guilty that that kept the heat on it yeah i, yeah, I think too with the outfit and guys like harry it's, it's the it's the ego thing of like of like we can get away with this we're yeah. going to show you how you know how how bad we are. We can we can we like Harry once said. I, think was, I don't know if he may have said this to Louie. He goes, murdering people in Chicago is okay if you murder the right people. So I think in, like you know that that's the way these guys think. It's like they really could get away with murder because if they, you kill someone like Billy Logan or kill someone who wrongs them in their eyes, they're not doing anything wrong. You know. I wonder what ever happened to that Bob Lowell. Now, uh, a little bit, I was able to learn that he he once he was asked after the trial. He said, "Well, he said if there's a new trial, he said I'd testify again. I stood up for what I believe." But he's purport, yeah, he, purported yeah, after the trial. Yeah, but I mean, he did the, move. Yeah, after the trial, he kind of his his life kind of fell apart after the trial though yeah. because he ended up they ended up moving him. They moved him to I believe Wisconsin, I think. Like southern Wisconsin, which really isn't that far from Chicago. <laughs> yeah, really, think about yeah. it. So oh yeah, I'm really yeah. surprised. You know, actually, honestly, I think the first town they moved him to was actually near was near Beloit, Wisconsin. I think it may have been Beloit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and um, and they got him a job at a gas station, which was his old career. So yeah. it wouldn't take the outfit very long to figure out <laughs> where yeah. Billy was or where um Bobby what Bobby Lowe was. But um, yeah, like um. But then he started heavily drinking and he got into cocaine and drugs and stuff, which, I mean, obviously he was under a, uh, under a lot of stress and pressure. I mean, he had, I think he had four or five children they had. So, he I mean, I can't imagine how tough it's got to be to testify 
you know, at a, at a major murder trial and then have to take your whole life, your family, your children, and move them to another state and stuff. And so I think she really just started, and she ended up actually stealing from his job, like to, to support his, his drug habit. And he ended up going to prison for, I think, a couple of years, actually, in the mid-'80s went to prison. Well, good thing they didn't have the internet back then because they could have found them really easy. Yeah, real easy. Now, you know, what? what's interesting to me is, so, you know, poor Billy Logan, who's murdered, just in cold blood, right? And all he is, he's like a dispatcher for a trucking company. And then, you know what? You never hear about another dispatcher for that trucking company getting murdered. I mean, I think there's a certain element where, you know, they, they approach Billy Logan, they're like, hey, you know, this is the freight, you got to pay it. And uh, and he wasn't willing to do that. And as a result, they killed him. There's also that element of not only do they think they can get away with it, but it it sends a message. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, so that the next oh, the next guy who's the dispatcher probably just went ahead and, and, and gave it up. <laughs> yeah, if that was part of the deal. Oh, I don't definitely. know if it was or not, <laughs> but uh, it probably was. That, that that makes more sense if that was part of the deal, but uh, not just some personal thing. Oh, definitely. The, the personal thing figured into it also. And the whole killing does not make sense, uh, if you ask me. No, it's yeah. Not, it never seemed to add up. That, that's the thing. It's like, it just seemed like such a, a minor thing to without the normally would kill someone over for, like, you know, just a personal a personal beef. So I, I always thought there'd be there more to the story than, than just, like, an argument between a husband and wife. Yeah, it, it seems to me like it. Well, anyhow, Harry Ellman, we talked about what happened to uh, Bob Lowell, and, and Billy Logan, of course, is dead. Uh, Harry Ellman will go on and set up home invasion robberies like he's been doing. You know, he had his own robbery crew by then, he, just like when he started. Uh, uh, now, he runs a crew, and they he gives them 500 bucks each, and they go do home invasion robberies. He, but he's somehow, and I didn't get the details. Do you know any more about that? He gets a conviction. Uh, in in either one or more of those uh, home invasion robberies, and, and he goes yeah, to jail. Yeah, what happened was is after, yeah, he was he uh, the trial that he got, you know, the 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 the, the Billy Logan murder trial. That the not guilty verdict happened in May of 1977, and I think July, two months later, the feds indicted him for the um his robbery crew. So basically, I think like according to Harry's lawyer at the time, he said. The feds were just using, you know, making it a witch hunt. But obviously, the feds must have had this. Obviously, the feds knew enough about Harry; they had enough to indict him on the, the robbery crew. So, yeah, July of '77, he was indicted for, I think, four strong arm robberies. They did. I think that's what they got him indicted for. And he ended up getting 11 years in prison for that. So he he's off the streets. Comes back after that 11 yep. years. I, what I did find out that he had a 30 year sentence, but did 11 years of it. Man, if we could talk to yeah, the... 30, yeah, 30 did 11, that's correct. If we could talk to the prison guard who was watching over Harry Ailman. Well, all they did was go paint pictures and <laughs> send them out. I, I understand some guy, I asked a question, but anybody knew where any of those Harry Ailman uh, paintings were? And one guy said that there was a restaurant somewhere up there that had yeah, a bunch what, what of them on the Taylor wall. Street in Chicago. Do you know if those are still there or do you have any idea? Um... You know what? I can check. I don't live that far from there. Okay, I yeah. Thought about going over there. Hey, if you do, take some. There. If you do, take some pictures of them and post them. Right. Oh, send yeah, them definitely. to me. I'll post them. Yeah, get that address. Yeah, that would be interesting. Uh, so uh, he's painting pictures, and he comes back out, and here's something that uh, Joe Ferriola was his uncle. Remember, it was his mother's who was Italian, his mother's brother, 
his first boss, and he had died in the meantime. And, and, and you think of these guys, they only leave, like, you know, cash money to different people. And he left $100,000 in his will, which means that it had to be in a bank somewhere or you wouldn't have worried about the will. And so he comes back out, and he's got $100,000 to start back up business with, moves in with his family and back with his family in Oak Brook. He is always a family guy. His uh, son-in-law runs a concrete cutting business, Accurate Coring Company, at 825 Seegers Road, Des Plaines. I, I don't know if that's probably not, doesn't still it's, own that company. It's right next to a hair airport, like in that area. Okay. Des Plaines is, that, is not that far north, then, is it? No, not at all. It's, yeah, it's probably maybe 20, 20 minutes north of Oak Brook. Well, when he first gets out, he's like, I, and I've seen this. These guys, when they first get out on parole, they mind all their P's and Q's. Uh, whether you're a uh, two-bit drug dealer or you're a uh, guy like Harry Edelman, they always mind their P's and Q's. And what I was able to learn is, is he went to work every day. He was the uh, yep. office manager. And his, his wife would say that during that time was the best time of their lives. He, she said they cooked together. They shared meals. Uh, he was there with the family. He was always there with the family a lot, but that was some of the best times yeah, one of, of their lives. Yeah, one life. of the, um, his one of his grandkids was sick and had to have surgery, and I guess here he stayed by his bed in the hospital the entire time the child was in was in you know in the hospital recovering from surgery, and Harry never left the hospital at all the whole time and stuff, and yeah, they said like his yeah his 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 stepdaughter and stepsons all said Harry you know he did they would, they would pick him up from school every day and take him to school in the morning, and Harry he got out April of eighty nine is when he got out for the um. A robbery charge at the, the sentence, and he was reindicted then that February of 1990. Then, oh, the, oh wow, Bakia police, yeah, in that whole um, operation, good ship lollipop. And what was that case. about? What was that about? I see, I've got some notes that here was, about about bribery yeah, and beatings that, and murders and uh, yeah, that, and the gambling. That, that one covered mur- yeah, that one covered gambling, murder, extortion, loan. Tra- I mean, it was it was a, a what? I mean, tw- it was 20 people were indicted. A, um, Rocky and Felice was the main guy, Sal De Laurentiis, Louis Marino, Robert Bellavia, and like all, all the Cicero guys were all indicted, and Harry was indicted. Harry, but Harry's part of the, tr- the indictment was for the Anthony Rettinger murder, the 1975 Halloween murder. Oh, yeah, we talked about that. They mentioned the Logan murder, but he wasn't charged with it since because it was double jeopardy. But in the indictment, it was brought up that he was a main, a top suspect still in the Billy Logan murder and stuff, and also in like, um, and he was also indicted for extorting bookmakers. They got him on for that one, and so that that was in February of 1990, and the, I think it was the day before the trial was to begin. Harry pled guilty to um, extorting, that's the murder of Rettinger, but extorting the bookmakers. And stuff, and he ended up getting sentenced. I believe that one was ten years. I think he took a ten to twelve year sentence mm. on that one. They probably but, um, didn't. He was looking at though. Yeah. He was looking at a longer. If he would have gone to trial, he was looking at a, a lot longer. And I think his lawyer advised him just, you know, what, just plead, plead out, and you'll be back out in the streets, and you know, in ten years, you yeah. know, at at, at, the, at, a min- at a minimum of ten years. Yeah, they, they must not have thought they could make him on that uh, con- getting convicted of that Redinger murder. They must not, must have been yeah, a little light on the evidence I think on Harry that. Knew it. But I think here, I think the thing was here. I think he, that he was nervous about was they had so much 
because the main witness was uh, William Jehoda, who was the top bookmaker for the Infeliz Cicero crew. Yeah. And he was he wore a wire on all those guys. Not Harry, though. He never got Harry on tape, but he wore a wire on all those guys, and there was so much damning evidence on those wires that just with Harry's name being lumped into that trial, Harry, I think Harry knew he was going to go down with everybody. Yeah. So I think he, he, he pled out before, which was probably a good thing because all those guys got convicted, and some of them got convicted for murdering Hal Smith, who was an independent bookmaker in 1985. And I think just I think Harry wanted to separate himself as much as possible from any murders in that in that indictment. Now, Harry's kind of an interesting little tidbit I picked up. He he asked this was in federal court. This was a, a extortion, federal extortion, probably part of a RICO case, maybe. And and he asked the judge if he could be sent to a prison at Oxford, Wisconsin, because they had a really good painting program, and he wanted to pursue his uh, painting hobby. He said he'd been there before, and he enjoyed the artwork there and the painting programs. And plus, Oxford was the best for landscape and still life. So uh, (laughs) Looking out the prison windows, painting some landscape. Now is it? It's, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's, it seems like it's kind of pushing it. It's bad enough that you, you're pleading guilty to all these crimes, and then you're you're asking the judge for a favor. Then you know, hey, <laughs> yeah, really. this, this, this right. very nice prison because it's got a great art, you know, a great art class, and also it's got great scenery outside the prison. Oh. And I've driven by that. I used to have relatives in Wisconsin. I used to drive by that prison all the time. And if they think that's beautiful scenery, that I don't know, I don't know what they what they consider beautiful scenery, but it's very depressing scenery if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like another address for the. Uh, well, if you're locked up in prison, anything looks good. Yeah, really. At that point, need to, we need to do a 1970s uh, mob uh, crime tour of, of Chicago. I think that thing would be immensely popular. I, I really do. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, it, I mean, yeah. In the 1970s, there were so many. I mean, that was probably the height of the killing, at least, at least in the modern day outfit. Yeah. The 70s are probably the most violent decade of of murder. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, that's one thing I learned going through these archives. And you just type in a couple key words like m- mob murder and type in like 1970s. I mean, hundreds of articles will pop up. Now, my, it's amazing the amount of articles that pop up just covering, you know, murders that took place in the 70s. It's like, I mean, that, I mean, because you had Joey Ayupa who was the boss, and he was known for, you know, pretty much, you know, you know, issuing executions at the drop of a hat. You know, he would, he would not, you know, he was, he, he definitely was, you know, like sending a message out instead of like, you know, some of the later bosses would rather like kind of do a low-key thing, but, like, Ayupa like to send a message. Was that, uh, so when you do a Google search of the Good Ship Lollipop, which was the name of that investigation, right? Yeah. It, it doesn't tell you that uh, it, that investigation was run by Shirley Temple? <laughs> Shirley Temple. <laughs> <laughs> Why do they have to call it the Good Ship Lollipop? We're the outfit in Chicago. We're the baddest men in the mob, and they're calling this investigation the Good Ship Lollipop. I know, and I, if I remember correctly, I don't know if it's the... I don't know if that's what the mob guys nicknamed their opera. I think it was, I think Infelisno's guys... Nicknamed their operation that as a joke, kind of like their kind of like their code word for it, because they they had a floating casino they had. They had a like oh. a house in northern Illinois that they opened a casino in, and the house they opened a casino in, a a, a, a family, a husband and wife was murdered in the house, but not by the mob. The the, the, the children, one of the children, murdered the family. Yeah, and the house sat there vacant for years. So the mob ended up buying the house or renting it and using it as a casino, and they ended up killing. 
I think what, they killed one bookmaker in the casino, and that was one of those murders that 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 was that, that was covered in the trial. But I, if I remember correctly, I think on one of the wiretaps that William Jehoda got of Infelice, that was a code name. Like the Good Ship Lollipop was the name of the casino. That was like a, a nickname for it they had. Yeah. And I think that's why the feds may have called it that or something like that. Yeah, you know, I don't. I, yeah, because I keep. Yeah, that, that, that's why I filed to do more research, but I believe that's why they nicknamed it that. Well, that'd be another interesting address on that 70s uh, Chicago outfit tour is where is that house up in Wisconsin that they did the gambling in? Oh, yeah. Well, it was called, nicknamed the, the Rouse House, R-O-U-S-E, because that was the last name of the family that um, yeah. was murdered in it. And it was in, I believe, um, oh, God, what, what town was that in? It was a northern suburb of near Gurney, where, like, Great America is. That It's like, it was, like up there and, um, like, near Waukegan, I believe. I know it wasn't Waukegan, though, but um, that's where um, the house was located. And, and the reason why it was a good location was there was a mansion located on property of, like, I don't know how many acres, but it was basically hidden away. And the, the outfit paid off the local cops to keep, an, you know, to keep, like, the you know, the legit police away from it. So, like, cause the cops were, were in on it and stuff. And the casino only ran for about a month. And during the trial, I think Jehoda testified that they pulled in, like, something like $3 million profit in just one month in the casino. Wow, that's, that's amazing. And, but Ailman couldn't buy off that judge? So he had to ask <laughs> him for a better <laughs> that's what, that's venue a, to sit at and paint pictures? This was a federal judge. Oh, well. That's why the other one was yeah, a Cook County too, judge. And, and at the time this trial started... Is this is when this was, and right, actually right when this trial started is is when Robert Cooley was exposed as uh, FBI informant working with the feds, and so that's when everyone knew. I think the guys like Allen knew that more more indictments were going to be in the future. That since Cooley flipped, so I think I think a lot of these guys were like trying to plead out and hopefully that they couldn't be retried for these murders, or murders or other crimes once Cooley flipped and you know again and which obviously ended up happening to Allen in the end, but. Um, yeah, I mean, the 90s were definitely a big downfall for these guys. Once Operation Gambit and Greylord took place in the 90s, or the 80s and early 90s, the outfit lost control of 15 cases, and a lot of these guys were, you know, they knew they were pretty much headed to prison for a good portion of their life. Yeah, that uh, Operation Gambit and Greylord, they, they really took a lot. They, they took down their influence out of the court system, and boy, when they lost that, they, they just they lost everything, really. Oh, everything definitely. Yeah, the first ward. Yeah, they. I mean, to the mean. I mean, I think they even caught Ocardo on a wiretap, even saying that he goes like Ocardo was caught saying, "Um, they, you know, they destroyed us. You know, we're ruined now." Because I mean, that was their. That was a key to the outfit. I mean, having the first ward was like you know having the having the key to the city, basically. Yeah, I mean, they really. controlled the first ward, controlled everything at the time. So by losing that, I mean all those decades and decades of payoffs and everything of like pitting their own people in power all went down the drain. So here we are at the kind of the uh, uh, three quarters of the way, shall we say, through the, the career of Harry the Hook Ailman, feared outfit enforcer and hitman. He survived a murder trial, got him a not guilty. He's, uh, he's robbed a lot, done a lot of home invasion robberies. He's, he is the most feared enforcer, if you will, in Chicago for the Chicago outfit. Uh, I don't know if there's anybody more feared, anybody's name that's more feared than Harry Ailman about this point in time. What do you think, Mike? Oh, probably not. Yeah, I mean, just that, like, I mean, there, there was guys who'd use, you just use his name to collect debts, and people would pay up just uh, just hearing his name. So, yeah, he was probably most one of the most feared guys. So, so he's in. He he cops his plea on this extortion of some bookmakers. 
Uh, probably all they got to do is say, I'm Harry Edelman, I'm here to collect. And they start handing him money. <laughs> oh, exactly. That's exactly what they did, yep. <laughs> and he's, this is eight, late 80s, uh, early 1990. It looks like he's getting ready to get out of the penitentiary from that when he gets some really bad news. Uh, and that comes yep. out of that Operation Gambit and, and our friend Robert Cooley, former uh, Chicago police officer, lawyer, and uh, all-around fixer for the outfit. So uh, he's uh, he's been working undercover for the feds. He actually, I don't know if they had a case on him or he just got uh, felt guilty and came in. Do you remember? Was, yeah, of course. I, they, they didn't, when he came in, he came in in 1986. He he went to the strike force office, and the first thing he he demanded before he gave him anything was he he wanted to know if they were working on any cases against him. And the feds said no, they they, they weren't working on anything on him, and so um, that's when he agreed to wear a wire and stuff. So yeah, he came, he coolly to this day claims he did it all out of conscience, but there are people who said that he did it out of fear that because he did have outstanding gambling debts to the outfit, yeah, range into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, but. I mean, a guy like Cooley was pretty well protected, though. They, they wouldn't harm Cooley, probably, just from all the favors he's done for them. But some people believe that that's, the, that's what his motivation was. But Cooley does claim that he did it more because his father was an honest cop at a time yeah. when honest cops really got a bad rap. So I think Cooley claims that he did it for his father, basically, because he felt bad that his father was such a good guy his whole life. And here Cooley was, made a career, a mockery of like the criminal justice system, and Cooley at one time was a Chicago cop, too, and he took bribes. So Cooley basically was the opposite of his father, basically. You know, his father was this honest cop at a time in Chicago when things weren't so honest. And then here comes, you know, his son is probably one of the most corruptible lawyers at the time and stuff. So I think, you know, I mean, I'm sure it's probably a little, little from column A and a little from column B. I'm sure Cooley had probably a little conscience and at the same time probably figured, hey, it might, it might not be too bad to get these outfits bookmakers and enforcers off my back trying to collect a couple hundred grand from me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really. <laughs> That's kind of a, uh, uh, you know, the government, government will give you some money and create a new identity and a new life for you, and you can dump off several hundred thousand dollars in gambling debts is uh, not, probably not a bad deal. That's what they ended up doing. They ended up giving Cooley money to pay off the bookmakers because they wanted to make cases against the bookmakers. Wow. <laughs> so they ended, up pay, they, they ended up giving Cooley, I don't, I, they didn't give them all the money, but they gave them like, because I guess each payment would be one count of the indictment. So they wanted Cooley to make small payments oh. so they could get as many indictments as possible against these bookmakers. Interesting. So, I mean, the feds, the feds really, they really did work the case really well. I mean, because they really, they got, they, went, they got from the low-level bookmakers all the way up to like top, the high, the high reaches of the outfit with guys like Pat Marcy, who, I mean, next to Cardo and probably the outfit bosses, Pat Marcy's probably one of the top guys up there, too. He certainly had the power because he had the connection to the politicians and the judges and, and the uh, prosecutions, yep. prosecutors. So let's... Uh, uh, well, I wonder if he pl- used that money to place a few more bets and not just pay off a debt. <laughs> because he has a gambling problem. Well, maybe he went into Gamblers Anonymous. We can only hope. Does the, witness, <laughs> does, does the feds have a witness protection program for that? Because it would probably be easy to find if you went into witness protection and you were still in a gambling problem. You know, he, he was in, but I think he, I think he's a lot of them that came back out again and was using his own name. I, there's a video of him being interviewed in later life uh, online. I kind of tried to reach out to see if I could yeah. get a response from him, but I, I couldn't seem to get one. Yeah, he, I think he, he goes under his regular real name again, and at one point, 
police on his Wikipedia page that gave his exact location of where he was living currently. But then when I went back to see it again, it was taken off immediately. Huh. And if I remember correctly, it was somewhere like Spokane, Washington, it said he was living. I mean, I don't know. It's Wikipedia, so who knows how yeah. how true it is. But, um, but, um, cool. but yeah, he has given many interviews, you know, even the last couple of years, like, you know, when, he's, you know, when, when his book came out in 2001 or 2002, he actually came back to Chicago and did, all, he did some autograph signings at local bookstores, <laughs> but there was a big, big police presence, obviously, you know, when he did it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, in one interview, he claimed that he, he, he planned on moving back to Chicago, but, I mean, this was years ago. I don't know if he ever did. I mean, honestly, if, I mean, if he did... Everyone, everyone he pits in prison is dead. Besides, like guys like Marco D'Amico and his crew, those guys are still active. So I don't know how dangerous that would be for him. But I mean, if he knows what neighborhoods to stay out of, yeah, things like that, he's probably not like a guy like Frank Calabrese Jr. I mean, he's back in Chicago and and he's not too hard to find. So I mean, I think these days the outfit, this kind of stuff. That, I mean, I think they kind of left. It's definitely not the same same outfit as it was back then. I think, I mean, a guy like Frank Calabrese Jr. or Robert Cooley gets hit, the feds are going to be all over those guys. That's true. So I think those guys know it's like, well, you know, they they can't really, I mean, they're kind of untouchable in a way. I mean, I guess depending on what they what they want to do to them, but I mean, there's a certain kind of like stigma, like, you know, is it worth killing a guy like Robert Cooley to have the feds come down that hard on you? You know, is it really worth it to them? Yeah, probably not. And, you know, Calabrese Jr. and Frank Culotta, both, all you'd have to do is book their tours, either in Las Vegas or uh, Chicago, book their oh, yeah, tours, I mean, and you know exactly I mean, where I mean, they are. I mean, well, Calabrese Jr. is actually, I mean, I, I mean I, him and I speak on a regular basis, and, I, and him and I actually worked together at his former pizza place that he was part owner of. He actually yeah. got me a job there. Oh, really? And so I worked with him, and so like that. So we would talk, you know, just talk about some outfit stuff. And he, I mean, he shared some recent stories just about stuff like people he's run into in Chicago. And he's run into, he's, he's run into some outfit guys and he's, he's never had any major problems. But he said there's been a few kind of like, well, a couple of tense situations where like it was, you know, it never got to a fight, but it was kind of like, like they were unhappy. He was, and, and he was unhappy that they, he was there basically. Yeah. But like, I mean, but also Calabrese Jr., though, the only person he really testified against was his father. I mean, it was, it's Nick Calabrese is the one I think they're look, they, would, they would rather look to, to get their hands on because Nick really testified to take guys like Lombardo and Marcelo away. But Frank, you know, I think Frank, I mean, I think a lot of people understood the position Frank Jr. was in, though. His father was a, a monster of a man, you know? Yeah. So I think a lot of outfit guys kind of felt bad for Frank Jr. in a way, too, you know? I mean, he grew up in a very rough household. Yeah, he, it was like his father put him in a position where it wasn't any choice. And, and but his uncle Nick, he brought he's the one that brought everybody down in that family secrets trial. Exactly. Frank yeah, he's didn't the guy know I enough. think that the outfit was really like to see. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Frank just Frank. I mean, Frank knew enough to put his father away, and but everything else he kind of knew was all maybe hearsay and yeah. or stuff he captured on tape with his father. But but Nick, you know, corroborated everything with with it. So I mean. But still, yeah, Frank, Frank was main. I mean, Frank told the feds that even that his that his main focus was his father all along. He didn't want to. He wasn't looking to put anyone else in prison but his father. And he was so young at the time. I mean, really, he had hadn't had a chance. He'd just been. He'd just done stuff for his father. He had not branched out and done a lot yeah. of things for other people or with other people. He, he wasn't, uh, you know, like a. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it was Uncle Nick actually who saved him in the end because. Frank Jr. was supposed to be the trigger man and John Fecarota hit. Yeah. And it was Nick who ended up doing the hit for him. So, I mean, so Nick actually saved Frank Jr. from a, from a, from basically a, a future of being an outfit member and, you know, and 
probably either wind up in prison or be dead by now, you know? Yeah, interesting. Well, I think I may have said this earlier and maybe in the Facebook thing. I, I messaged him. I'm trying to get him to come out to Las Vegas to our Mob World Summit. That would be that would be fun to get him to come yeah, out. Yeah, I'll talk. To to, I'll, I'll give him. I'll give him a call. Yeah, if you talk, talking talking to him, just to mention it to him. I, I yeah, did, he wants sure to know how many people. Sure are, he'd be definitely interested in doing. Yeah, he he is interested. He kind of. I understand he needs to make money, and he wants to know about how many people are going to come. And and I'm not sure yet. I'm going to get hold of the guy that that's been uh, managing the uh, Eventbrite site and see how much interest there is so far. You you can never tell about those deals until the last minute. I know the last one we did, oh, which, so when I met deep. Frank, is 2013. There was probably 125 to 150 people there. He's, he sold some books, and he, and he really puts on a good show yeah. as far as telling stories. He's great. The, Frank and I did a small event at the pizza place that he used to own back in, like, August. And, you know, we just kind of, we kind of it was a local thing. And, it was, and like, we, we got maybe, like, you know, 30, 40 people out. But, like, yeah, it's so hard to, uh, to gauge and what those events will bring in, yeah. you know, and how much time you need to plan and promote everything. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's tough to do. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll talk about doing something all together up there in Chicago. We'll, uh, uh, that, that might be something oh, be we, we would uh, investigate and kind of combine audiences and do a mob summit up in Chicago. If we could do a, uh, if we could, if we could just get the press to say something about it, we we need to get more than the oh, just definitely. hardcore mob fans to ever think about making any money. But but it's a possibility. Let's keep keep that in your mind, and 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 we may do that. In the meantime, Mike, let's uh, you can you can come back and and do one more episode, and we'll finish up uh, our good friend Harry the Hook Aleman, can't you? No, sure, yeah. All right, great. I'm going to do a public service announcement now, and we will get on out of here. Uh, if you have a friend or a relative that has a problem with drugs or alcohol, make your first call to first call. Call 816-361-5900 or go to their website, www.firstcallkc.org. What do you got to say to that, Aaron? I got to say, folks, you need to get the documentary that started it all, Gangland Wire, available for purchase on Amazon for only like $7. You're going to want to watch that over and over again because there's some great audio clips and interviews with the folks that brought the mob down in Kansas City for Skimming in Vegas, a documentary by Gary Jenkins that inspired him to create an app called the Kansas City Mob Tour app for like $1.99. You could take your own personalized tour of notorious mob locations in and around Kansas City. And then if that's not enough, Gary's got a new book, Leaving Vegas. How FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. It's a great read, but it's an even better Kindle because there's hyperlinks to the actual audio from the wiretaps distilled down with transcriptions so that you can understand what these guys are saying because they're talking in code, they're talking in Sicilian, and they're the actual men. From the mouth of the men that did it, it's leaving Vegas how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination in Las Vegas. And then if that's not enough, you need to uh, subscribe, share, and support Gangland Wire. Yeah, do that. We uh, can't really talk about the Mob Summit. You're going to hear this. We'll already have done the Mob Summit. It's going to be after summit. the Mob Summit. Yeah, we talked a little bit, but it's more personal on uh, talking to Mike and planning on stuff for the future. So, uh, Mike, it's been good talking to you, and we will talk to you in the next fourth and final episode about Harry the Hook Aleman. Good night, Mike. Sounds good. Say good night, Aaron. Good night, Aaron.
Bumper music provided by Automatic. Follow them on Twitter at Automatic Music. You know, I was going to say, and maybe it's better in the kind of the break segment here if you don't put this in. Uh, uh, Mike, if you go back to Wikipedia, usually if there's been a page established that somebody has written something on, you can, if, I think, if easily if you're logged in or not, but you can go back to previous versions of that page and it will show you how it appeared. Oh, really? Yeah. This guy, yeah, I didn't know that either. Yeah, go to, go do that, and you can go back and kind of look at the history of the of the page as people add to it, and you you can see older versions of the of whatever that page was. So, I was kind of I was gonna oh, say wow, I, I was gonna that. I was gonna <laughs> say that in the episode, uh, and uh, yeah, but uh, apparently the secret word for this episode is coolie. <laughs> see if Gary leaves that in. <laughs> Hold on, I'll bring Gary so, up. Be something we, we could put in at the end of the episode here. If you really want to know where Cooley lives, you're going to have to listen to us talk about how I tell people that they could actually find it by... You know. Now, how do you do that, Aaron? Say that If you again. go to Wikipedia... And what? And there's like a page history. When someone creates a page yeah. and then they edit the page, yeah. there's a history there. And you can go and look at various revisions of oh, I the see. Wikipedia wow. page. I never noticed so that. So I imagine that the, if there was an address or other information that somebody maybe took out, that if you looked at one of the older versions of the page, it would still be there. Oh, interesting. All right, let's... check uh, that out. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm hoping I'm right. I mean, I've done this before on Wikipedia where I've gone and looked at the history of a, of, of a page revision and found different information. The uh, maybe we get Cooley to come out. <laughs> yeah, really. Maybe if we could find Cooley. I did try to. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to run the, the restroom F- real quick. Okay, he's going to run the bathroom. I did try to find the uh, um, FBI agent that brought him in, a guy named Terrence Hake. I had a connection uh, with an FBI agent that that knew him or uh, knew somebody that knew him or something, and they were going to. Send him the message and see if I couldn't get him to do a call-in show about Cooley. That would be good, but I, I've never heard from him. I'd forgotten, oh, I'd forgotten yeah. I'd even did that until I'm looking back on my notes. And I was going to say that in the uh, uh, in this, uh, but now I realize that, that guy's never gotten a hold of me. So you never know about these deals. I'll go back to my connection and and uh, see where we're at on that, if, if she had ever done it or what the deal was. I've got a... All these FBI agents have uh, their phone numbers and contact information in the retired agents directory. And uh, Bill Owsley, our oftentimes contributor here that, that comes in, why he'll he'll help me find FBI agents to see if I can uh, come get them to come on my podcast. Most of them got some kind of a book to sell, so they're happy to to come out and do stuff like this. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm thinking about that. Uh, Aaron was on me one other time to try to go up and do some kind of a meetup in Chicago, and and I kind of I don't know, I just didn't, I wasn't in the mood at the time. <laughs> I'm I'm doing less other work and not so busy now, so I may think about putting something like that yeah, together. It's a, it's a it's a hard thing to do because it's like you know, when you try to do those things, you get you know you get people all you get people saying, oh you know. 
I wish you did it this day. I can't make this day. Yeah, and I know. Just, you know, it's 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 hard. It's it's such a, it's such a it is it's almost like a full time job to do it all is, those things together it is sometimes to, to because, do do an you know, event. Yeah, you gotta find a location, and then yeah, then you got to promote it, and then people you know you know are pitching because oh it's too far or oh yeah. why can't you do it this day? It's almost to the point where it's like. Yeah, you know, is it, is it really worth it? It, it is worth it in the end, but yeah, it is a lot of work, though. Yeah, I don't think uh, we've but done. It's a good idea, though. I mean, it'd be something that it's something that I mean, it'd be fun. I mean, I'd be willing to, to, to you know, to, to, to help out and do it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it could be a really fun thing to do. But yeah. I mean, something like that. I mean, it definitely takes some some planning. That's for sure. It would, and and it would take some outlay of cash. I think uh, I would I would definitely want to charge something for it. I believe that people value things more if they have to pay something anyhow as opposed to if it's just free oh definitely yeah so we i don't know we'll talk about that over the next few months if it, uh, uh i don't foresee anything yeah. this summer uh next winter or next late fall maybe it'd be the earliest i'd want to do something i'm kind of going to dug off this summer a little bit and take some time away i've got a bunch of podcasts in the can and and uh, sometimes then, you just need a break <laughs> gonna get some more in vegas yeah. yeah, we'll get some more in Vegas. And yeah, we got uh, a guy, this uh, Robert uh, Andretti, uh, I can't pronounce Andrachi or something. He's a former uh, Illinois, um, some kind of Illinois state investigator that did a mob thing uh, investigation and in gambling in uh, in a suburban Chicago area. He's got a pretty good story to tell. I want to, I'd like to get that gal, that uh, Lefty Rosenthal's gal, to sit down and do a podcast for sure. Oh yeah, uh, and I'm trying to think. Seemed like there was somebody else that was Ronald be Finno. Out there. Oh, Ronald Finno. I'll do one with him out there. He's a really you. You don't know him. He he's a really interesting, great storyteller. He's got a book called The Triangle Exit. He was his dad was a, a Buffalo, New York mob guy, and he was in a labor union as a job as a younger man. And and of course he was he was kind of he was loosely connected because of his father, and he ended up. Can't, I don't remember the exact detail, but he ended up actually working for the FBI for, and then the, maybe the CIA after that for years uh, as a like a contract agent and going in and doing things. And and this guy, he is a dynamic dude, and I could see where he could do it. And he's, I did a program with him before he, out there at the Mob Summit, and he really totally overshadowed me because he had such great stories and. I mean, he's all the way up to talking about selling guns to Al Qaeda, and, and later in his career. So <laughs> he, he was—he's uh, a good dude, and we want to get him talking about his career. I just have never done it. Now that he's going to be out there. Well, we'll uh, we'll get him. So anyhow, let's uh, let's go ahead and start this. Do you want to start yep. it? Do you want to just go from dead stop I'll, here? I got it queued here. Right? Okay, he's going to bring down the mics and cue back up the music and go back in. Mike. 